Then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and you say, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him, and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Thus far, the word of God. Let's pray. Father, be exalted through that which you have appointed, the preaching of the word, a stumbling block and an offense to those who do not believe, and yet to those whom you have called yourself and given life in Christ, it is the very word of God, the bread of life, water for our souls. We dwell in a a parched land, and Lord God, we rejoice that we come before you in worship to an oasis and a refuge, a place of blessing and strengthening. Lord, feed us with the bread of heaven, even Christ, as his word is proclaimed. May your spirit be at work, both in the going forth and in the hearing of the word, that there would be clarity and understanding, both through the one who speaks and through all who hear. To the end that Christ be magnified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen may be seated. We've all been engaged in arguments. Even the youngest of children argue with one another, even often before they had words to form. They're arguing in their own language, as it were. Young and old, there's one thing that usually happens in an argument. When one side cannot answer the facts that the other side keeps bringing, they will turn to name-calling. Children... um, lacking in understanding and wisdom, often turn to that rather quickly. But it's not simply that children do that. Adults, those who should know better, turn to name-calling and insults. They result to attacking their opponent instead of debating the issue. In a few weeks or two, your elders will be at General Assembly in St. Louis, Missouri, and there are very important matters that will come before the court, and debates will be had. Hopefully, each elder will debate the issues and not engage in attacking those with whom they disagree. We can see this immature behavior in the political arena. It's all too prevalent all the time. We the people grow weary of it. Name-calling insults, it's rude, it's mean, it's dehumanizing. It strikes at those who are image-bearers of God and devalues them, and nothing of value is accomplished. We've been progressing through the 8th chapter of John's Gospel for several weeks now, and we're really following a debate between Jesus and the Jews, as John often refers to them, the religious leaders. There's this debate. Jesus engaged with the Jews, as John frequently says, and the Pharisees, who seem to be at the forefront, and others have been debating Jesus' authority, his claims as to who he is. 
where he has come from. He's been very upfront. He's been very clear about coming from the Father, that he and the Father are one, that he does the will of the Father, that he's obedient. All the evidence is there. Those who would know, say, the book of Isaiah that we're working through would see he's the fulfillment of that and many, many other prophecies as well. Jesus has defended himself. He's challenged his opponents. He's even been gracious with them, calling them to look at the scriptures. Most recently, Jesus has made it clear that although the Jews claim Abraham is their father, they do not walk in the same manner as Abraham did. And therefore, they are not true sons of Abraham. He may be their father according to the flesh, but he is not their father according to the Spirit, who, like Abraham, would have believed God and it would have been counted unto them as righteousness. They're not the spiritual seed of Abraham because they do not believe God, nor the one whom God has sent into the world to save sinners. Jesus has rightly declared that because of unbelief that his self-righteous opponents, their father, is the devil. We saw that just last week. Like him, that is like the devil, they are liars and murderers. He has told them the truth, but they refuse to believe him. This gets right to the heart of the matter. As he said, he who is of God hears God's words. Therefore you do not hear them, because you are not of God. The immediate response of the Pharisees is name-calling, and as we will see this morning, that of the worst sort. We're going to use four main headings. A great insult, a great promise, knowing the Father, and then the great I am. A great insult, a great promise, knowing the Father, the great I am. We begin with a great insult. There it is in verse 48. Then the Jews answered him. This is as their discourse and debate has been continuing. They answer him and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? This should almost take our breath away. Consider who they're speaking to. They're speaking to the Son of God. Remember where we begin in John's Gospel. This is God incarnate. This is God come in the flesh. This is the promised one, the seed of the woman, foretold and promised by God to the first father of us all way back in the garden. J.C. Ryle rightly says, as these do, to lose a temper, to lose temper and call names is a common side of a defeated cause. Did you get that? You start name calling, it's because you can't win the argument. You don't have facts on your side. And so you resort to what, uh, I don't want to use a big word, kids, so I'll just say those who debate, there's certain rules of debate, and to attack your opponent is called an ad hominem attack. You're attacking the man. And that's exactly what these Jews have done. They've attacked not just a man, but the man, the God man, the Son of God, the Son of glory. They're unwilling to admit that they have been defeated by truth, unwilling to acknowledge that they are believers of lies, and so they hurl vicious insults. Soon they will be ready to hurl more than words. What we see is proof of hatred in the heart. Here is a clear violation of the Sixth Commandment. We deal with the Sixth Commandment as we come around in our rotation, and we are often reminded that 
you know, the outbreak of violence, the actual action against another, it begins in the heart. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount pointed out that that attitude, that sinful attitude in the heart of hatred towards another, that is the violation of the Sixth Commandment. We are seeing it play out as John's Gospel unfold, all the Gospels unfold. These men who are opposed to Jesus, who's come with the truth, who tells them the truth, who offers them life in his name, they want nothing to do with it. And there's hatred seething, an undercurrent within them that they would even strike him. Notice verse 48. They say, do we not rightly say, or do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? The Jews called Jesus a Samaritan and a demon. In in some sense, in the Jews' mind, those are great insults. It's a little bit lost on us, but uh, we've been in John's Gospel, but back in the fourth chapter, we talked about the woman of Sychar, a Samaritan, and we dealt with the fact that the Jews hated the Samaritans. They, in their mind, were half-breeds. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as trying to destroy the church. You can see here, taken up that Jesus is a Samaritan. In their mind, he's trying to destroy the church, which is them, their power structures, their, their rules, their, their wealth, their prestige, their power with the Jewish people, and even in some sense before the Romans. And so we might understand why, in their mind, they would say that. The Samaritans and Jews have no care or kindness for one another. Remember the woman in Sychar, she marveled that Jesus, a Jew, would speak to her, and her being a woman as well. And it became apparent as we dealt with that. He was no mere man. He was a savior of sinners. The Jews and the Samaritans long have been opponents. And so for a Jew to call another Jew a Samaritan was pretty much the meanest thing that you could say. But however, that wasn't enough. It's a great insult, no doubt lost on us. We did not grow up in that culture. But... It's like the racial epithets that have been hurled in our country in decades past. That's what they did. But they had to add something even more deadly. And they say, he has a demon. Right to Jesus' face. Do you have a demon? Look again. This, what they're saying here is not something new. Notice how they say, do we not say rightly? This is the first time. This is their practice. This is what they've been saying. As they they have their little huddles of wickedness and talk amongst each other, they're acknowledging out loud that we've been saying this right on along. That this Jesus of Nazareth, this man who's come from Galilee, he's a Samaritan and he has a demon. We find other places in the gospel where they also speak such insults. Well, Jesus has plainly stated the truth about them. What Jesus said about them in verse 4 was, was not an insult. It was a reality, and it was intended uh, ultimately uh, merciful. What did he say in verse 44? He says, you are of your father, the devil. And that was true. It was not an insult. It was the truth. It, it was one of the realities in the debate as it is drawing to conclude that he has stated this thing, which is very true. And indeed, as we consider him saying that they are the father of the devil, and that we see what they behave, J.C. Ryle's statement here resonates. He says, nicknames, insults, and violent language are favorite weapons with the devil. He's the accuser of the brethren. He comes to attack us and to malign us. And of course, he even goes after 
the Son of Glory himself. You see that in the beginning of Jesus' ministry as he's been anointed and set apart as the Messiah. The, the Spirit leads him out into the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And then Satan comes accusing and assailing and assaulting none other than the Son of God. I love it when God in his providence brings different parts of our service together. We were dealing with the ninth commandment this morning, the matters of the tongue, the use of the tongue. Uh, our brother, Elder, uh, picked the same text here, and, I, and I, I don't hesitate to read it again because it goes so well. James plainly declaring that the blows of the tongue, Satan and his servants using the blows of the tongue. Listen again to those words, I hope familiar words, words that... Uh, provide something of a check uh, when we are ready to hurl out insults. The tongue is a little member. You know, we got legs that are, I, I don't think what the math would be, many, 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 many times larger than our tongue. And yet the tongue can bring such a sting. It boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And so here James is using the image, you just, just a spark and a whole forest can burn down. So we've been reminded in recent years with fires out west. And then he says the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. Where does iniquity come from? It comes from the devil. That's what these men are clearly demonstrated. They are of their father, the devil. The way they behave, the way they respond proves the point that Jesus has made, that their father is the devil. The tongue is so set amongst our members that it defiles the whole body, and it sets on fire the course of nature And then what does James say? It is set on fire by hell. We're pretty casual with our words, are we not? Flippant. Stuff just flows off our mouth. You know, the old saying, you know, get your brain in gear before you start operating your mouth. We don't do that. Although, really, our brain is in gear. Furthermore, our heart is in gear. I remember Paul Tripp telling the story when he was this young boy, he and his brothers, they would go to these family reunions and they'd come make their appearance. And then his mother, I think she was a single mother, as quickly as she could, she'd get them out of there because there were some uncles that, that brought their bottles and they would get pretty tipsy and then just filth came out of their mouth. Well, one particular family union, they got started early and she didn't have her boys out of there soon enough and they're hearing this from their uncles. And she said to those boys, the point that is right here, what came out of their mouth was already in their heart. How many times have we spoken insults, evil words to another, and it's like, I didn't really mean to say that. That is a lie. We said it because it's in our hearts. And so often when we have hurt others, we ask for forgiveness of different aspects, but we fail to think about the damage our tongue has done and what it says about our hearts. We, we know everything we didn't know about these men when they say to the Son of God, the Lord of glory, you are a Samaritan and you have a demon. What has provoked these men to such extremities? Because Jesus is not willing to let them to believe the lie that they are heaven bound. That's really what it is. You know, they believe they're Abraham's children. And this we're going to see here more thoroughly. Their, their eyes are blinded. They are descendants from Abraham. But when the scripture talks about Abraham's seed being as numerous as the sand upon the seashore or as numerous as stars in the heavens, God was not promising Abraham that his physical descendants would be that large of a host. And it indeed is many. But he is saying 
to Abraham that through his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So by that, this, this scriptural principle, uh, no doubt a passage in Genesis that these would have had memorized, God is saying it's not being a descendant of Abraham that ultimately matters. It's to be a man like Abraham, a man who believed God and it was accounted unto them as righteousness. It's not the physical relationship, it's the spiritual. I've said to you children in previous sermons, I know it's been a little while, but you don't get to heaven as grandchildren. You must come to Christ even as your parents have come to Christ. We can't ride, as it were, on the shirt tails of our parents. And so Jesus spoke very truthfully about these men. If God was their father, indeed all would be well with their soul, and they would not speak and behave as they have. Once more, we see here John's irony. This, again, I, I keep pointing out because John's gospel records these irony. Here's the irony before us. Here are evil unconverted, God-hating, man-pleasing men, and they have such evil pride fixed in their hearts that they say to Son of God, who is innocent, pure, holy, and undefiled, they say to him, he has a demon. What irony. And indeed, what blindness. My friends, the word of God calls this evil speaking that they have done, that calls it blasphemy. It's not a word we use, but the word from the Greek brought into the English essentially just means that, evil speaking. That's what blasphemy is. And particularly, it's here directed at the Son of God. There are a few things that give greater insult to anyone, for that matter, than evil speaking. Words hurt. I don't hear it anymore, but when I was a boy, the age of some of you, uh, school children were cruel. Probably still true, right? Uh, but we had a saying, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You know what? That's a lie. You know, it was taught to us by our parents to somehow deflect hurtful words, but words hurt. Words hurt greatly. They, they can go right down into the core of our being. Evil words. Mark records another occasion where those that were present, the same group, uh, says to Jesus, who's been casting out evil spirits, been casting demons out of those who were possessed. They, they say he could do that because he was of the house of the devil. He was of Beelzebub. That's why he could cast him out. And that was an evil word. Jesus said at that occasion, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men. And whenever blasphemies are uttered, there's the evil speaking, he's saying those can be forgiven. But... There's an exception. He who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness and is subjected to eternal condemnation. The unforgivable sin. And Jesus more thoroughly in a similar, another account from that same occasion says, you can blaspheme God, it'll be forgiven. You can blaspheme the Son, it'll be forgiven. Great sins. That's what these men have done. But what underlies that, why there's little hope for them as long as they remain hardened in unbelief is they refuse to believe the Holy Spirit. And that is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. When, when the Holy Spirit is prompting us, as we hear the word preached, to see Christ as he is, the Son of God, when he prompts us to understand this is the truth, that I am a sinner and you must repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. When the scripture is revealed to us and the Spirit is prompting us to recognize the, the miraculous nature of Jesus coming and the virgin birth, all these supernatural aspects, the, the resurrection, and the Spirit is prompting us to believe these things, take hold of them, and we dismiss it. 
the Spirit of God, to dismiss him, uh, to dis, dis, dismiss his work, uh, to bring us to Christ, because there is the general operation of the Holy Spirit when the word is preached, that all who hear the Spirit's in some level at work, and to dismiss that is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It's like, nope, you're wrong. I'm smarter than you are. I know better than you do. I refuse to yield to you. And as long as you do that, there's no possibility of salvation. That's what Jesus says. You're subject to eternal condemnation because without the Spirit working in you, without the Spirit giving you a new heart, renewing your will, bringing faith to bear, and giving the desire to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, there's no possibility of salvation. It's interesting to think about these men, if they did yield to the working of the Holy Spirit, if they did repent and believe, what they've just said about Christ could be forgiven them. And I'm inclined to think that some of them did that because Paul will come to Jerusalem years later and he'll be told by the apostles that have remained there that not a few of the priests have believed. God is merciful and strong to save It is marvelous how the Spirit can work. What we say at this point, just by way of application, is as sinners, God's truth triumphs all your lies. And he he triumphs over the lies of of Satan, who is called the spirit of this age, who seeks to blind men's eyes and deafen their ears and to keep them under his bondage and yoke in his kingdom of darkness The Spirit comes to deliver us from those things, and it's through the truth of the Word of God. It's the word, the message of Christ is, Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The lie of the world out there is right now, there's all kinds of paths to get to heaven. You just just need some religion. No, Jesus Christ alone is the way to the Father. Through his blood and his righteousness, there is no other way apart from Christ. And so your arguments against God fail. You have lost the debate. So don't call God names. Don't blaspheme his name. Don't walk away. Bow your knee. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and his promises. He will lift you up. Children, that's true for you. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Jesus welcomes children. He even says we need to come with faith like a child. Without all the complexities that adults can manufacture. But just in simplicity, Jesus has promised who he is. I believe it, and I come to Christ. And I would also say to any sinners that are present, if you've been mocking God and spoken evil against his name and violated his commandments, Jesus stands ready to save. Come to Christ. But let me say to the other group of us, sinner saints, as I sometimes refer to us, never be surprised when the world turns against you. When we're engaging people with the gospel, when we're seeking to bear witness to them, um, we, we come with the truth. And it's God's truth. It's not ours. It's our truth. And we bring it to bear. And men will be dismissive. And they will come to the point where the truth of God, uh, hopefully by the Spirit of God, would overwhelm them and they'd be converted. But they may just you know, throw up the hand and, and start insulting us. Expect it. Sinful humanity never changes. These men said to Jesus himself, you're a Samaritan and you have a demon. So long as the world serves Satan, 
they will speak evil against the people of God. We prayed for North Korea this morning. The dictator and tyrant in that place is opposed to God. And that's why he treats God's people that way. We should expect it. We should anticipate it. But let us indeed rejoice and be exceedingly glad for so persecuted they the prophets who were before us. Take comfort, our beloved master, drunk, drank, drunk from the same cup of suffering, and even more so. He drank it down to the dregs. Like Peter and John, having been beaten for Christ, let us go forth rejoicing that we've been counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name of Christ. Jesus does speak in his own defense. He vindicates his honor. In verse 49, he says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. There's a rebuke there. Their words are a dishonor to him and a dishonor to the father who has sent him. He doesn't need to honor himself, though, because he goes on to say, I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks and judges. Jesus doesn't say, I'm not a Samaritan. I wrestled with that. I was down in Greenville Seminary for a board meeting. I went to my Greek professor. I said, what do you think about that? And I had some different ideas. They were, they were a little speculative. I knew that. And he goes, nope, 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 brother, don't even go there. So grateful for men like that. Um, we really don't know why Jesus didn't answer the question about being accused to be a Samaritan. Other than I will say this, Jesus loved the Samaritans. That was one of the things that stood out to me. Remember, he found it necessary to go to Sychar. He had an appointment there. So Jesus isn't ashamed to be identified with the Samaritans or the prostitutes or the tax collectors or with any of us sinners, whatever label men may put upon us. And so Jesus does not answer that, but he does answer the allegation that he has a demon. What an insult. And indeed, it was necessary to keep the ninth commandment that he respond to that. He does not have a demon, and he makes that clear. What he is doing, he's honoring his father. We just swimming through this discourse where he bears witness to himself. And he says, it's not, it's not a false saying, but there is another one who bears witness to me. My father bears witness to me. The word bears witness to me. My works bear witnesses to me. All these things ultimately are for the glory and honor of the father. Because Jesus does all to the praise and the glory and honor of the father. Even the humbling of himself to the cross. Jesus' purpose is to honor the father and to do his will. And these men have dishonored Jesus. They've dishonored the Father, who they claim as their Father. And in this context, this is what's remarkable, in this context, this is, what, this is what's going on, this is what's being said. Jesus says to the Jews a great promise, which is our second point. Look at verse 31, 51. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. That's his promise. If you keep my word... You shall never see death. He says this in most assuredly, the New King James, truly, truly, some translations, if you grew up on the old King James as I did, verily, verily. This is a certain statement. This is a truthful statement. Every word that comes out of Jesus' mouth is a truthful statement. But Jesus is drawing attention. He would have men to hear what he is saying is most assuredly true. Do not miss this. Take special note of it. Think about what he is saying. This is a great promise. If, it's conditional, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. This connects with John 3.16. Flip back and look at that again. Here's a great promise. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is that same great promise. It grows out of this. This is the, the grounds of it, that you believe in Christ. That's the way to being justified in the sight of God. That's the way to new life in Christ. John five twenty four. Most assuredly, there's that same statement of assurance, uh, a certainty. Most assuredly, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. My friends, that's the first resurrection. We're born dead. That's what these Pharisees fail to see. They're born dead. We're dead in our trespasses. And the first resurrection is when the Spirit of God brings the Word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to bear upon our hearts that we would repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And so when Jesus says this, this is the context. There's a backdrop. I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Jesus' doctrine is that to believe in him will result in obeying of him. You want to know if you have a new heart? Look at how you're living. The order is important. Jesus does not say salvation is by obeying in Christ. But he does say those who have salvation in me will obey me. They will do good works. They will believe God. They will obey God. When a sinner believes, God has already begun a good work in him, a work that he will bring to completion, and that will be manifest by obedience to Christ. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. Most of us have memorized 289. Um, I sort of have 10 down on. I'm a little rusty, so I'm turning there. But for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, lest any should boast. For we are his workmanship. That All that that's happening, the gift of faith, the gift of God, the grace of God, salvation of Christ, that's God's workmanship. His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That's what happened. Our faith unites us to Christ, and we are recreated, we're resurrected, we have partake of the, the first resurrection from death unto life. We're created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. I think too many evangelical Christians in our days say, we're, we're new creatures in Christ, so we can go to heaven. Just give me my insurance policy. Or I'll kind of poke at it a little bit more. Give me my get-out-of-hell-free card. An illusion to monopoly. Salvation in Christ, my friends, is way, way infinitely more than that. And if you have new life in Christ, Jesus is saying, Paul is saying, the scriptures are saying, if you're a new creature in Christ, you will be evidencing that here and now. Yes, it's, it's a three steps forward, two steps forward. There's a stumbling and a, and a halting and a stammering and a staggering as God is at work in us, not because there's anything flawed in God, but because of us and because of our flesh and because the sin that remains, that clings to us as mud to a garment. But God is at work in all that. Jesus is saying to these Pharisees who are so full of themselves and so confident in their self-righteousness, they're not obeying God. So the promise is made, and it's a true promise. If anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. What's the opposite of that? If you don't keep my word, you're already dead. You're still dead. As John recorded back in John 3.18, you're condemned already because you don't believe. And that's who these men are. These men have 
contend with Jesus. They, they maintain that they're children of God, and they maintain that they're Abraham's true sons, but they don't obey him. And so Jesus presses them on this air. This should be astounding to us. It should be encouraging to us. Jesus doesn't just you know, walk away from them. You know, sometimes when we get aggravated with our opponents, you know, we want to punch them. You know, and it's not just enough to have a word. You know, we, we go to blows, right, children? Sometimes we feel that too as adults, you know, and sometimes adults do that. But Jesus is merciful and long-suffering and patient with them. And in his words, there's a rebuke. You're seeking your own way, seeking your own glory. You're not doing the will of the Father. You're not the sons of Abraham that you believe that you are. But Jesus' promise is true. And because it's true, they must first believe that he is sent from the Father. That he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. But they don't. They're, notice that Jesus did not dwell on their insults. He, he dismissed, he said, I do not have a demon. And then he's pressing them really with the gospel again. It's a good lesson for us when we're engaged with people. You're sharing the gospel and there's some tension there. Maybe they hurl an insult. Just keep pointing them to Christ. Remind them of the great promise that whosoever believes may come. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, as we saw in Romans. These men think that because they study the law, they have eternal life. Jesus rebuked them for that very thing. You think because you study the law, not just to keep the law, but because you study the law, you think in that you have eternal life. They think because they descended from Abraham that they have eternal life. Jesus' promise is true, but they must first understand that what they hope for, they do not have it. Because they're not keeping Jesus' word. They mocked him with disgust because he went to the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners. Those people rejoiced that Jesus stooped to care for them and shared the gospel with them. And, and many were brought to him. Zacchaeus, a tax collector. You know, he was just curious as he climbed up in that sycamore tree. Jesus called him down. He went to his house and baptized him in the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus came into the world, to take the gospel by the work of the Spirit, to give him a new heart. And Zacchaeus says, I give half of what I have to the poor, and anybody I've defrauded, I'm going to pay him back fourfold. And Jesus said, this house is blessed because salvation has come to this house today. He's keeping the word of God. That's not how he got salvation. That's the proof that he had salvation. And these Pharisees do not get it. So what we see Jesus doing again and again, remember we've, con- we've contracted, contrast how people believed in Jesus because of the signs and wonders. He believed he was a miracle worker. He believed he could do signs and wonders. But the point is, it's his word. And after those miracles, many believed him and followed him. But then he preached. And there was the winnowing effect of the word. And there were those who went away. But that is the word. We give the word, the word of God, the word of the gospel, because faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10, Paul says, in that we hear him. We hear Christ. This is him. This is his word. All 66 books. This is the living word of God. In it we hear Christ. We may find it hard to find him in some passages. I'm just wrapping up First Chronicles, and it's like, you know, listen, listen, listen. I, I, even as I'm a preacher, I hear this. It's like, how do I preach Christ from that text? Well, I'm not there yet. <laughs> you know, I hope I'm mature enough that I can preach Christ through First Chronicles. You know, pray for me. It's, it's God's words, and it's profitable for rebuke, for correction, for training and instruction. But the, the Scriptures breathe of Christ because God breathed out the Scriptures, and God's breath is the Word, and Christ is the Word. So Jesus, with these contentious men, he gives them the Word of the Gospel. 
They're dead in their sin. Their sin, eyes are blind. Their ears are stopped. And they don't have a heart of understanding. But what do they say to this? Verse 52. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. They're picking at his word and not hearing the message of the gospel. They're picking at his word because he said, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never say death. They're picking at that. Now we know you have a demon. Abraham's dead. The prophets are dead. And you say, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. You see what they're thinking is, Abraham kept the word of God. The prophets kept the word of God. And they're dead. So how can you say that? You see the blindness? Jesus is talking about spiritual life. He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about having a partaking in the first resurrection. And all they, are, they, all they can see is the physical, the flesh, and the now. That's what we encounter when we go into the world. And that's what we must undergird every evangelistic opportunity with prayer and prayer and enlist others to pray that the Holy Spirit will open their eyes to give them eyes to see and ears to hear. So, to them, Jesus' great promise is just a lie. It's foolishness. It just proves their accusation that he has a demon. My friends, if you have life in Christ, you get what Jesus is saying in this passage. This is some sense, you know, if you're believers, you, you, you understand this. Because the scales have fallen off, your ears have been unstopped, you have a heart of understanding, you have a new heart. But these men don't have that. We need to remember to be patient with those that we witness to because they don't have it either. Jesus, of course, is speaking about eternal life, the resurrection, working in the spirit, regeneration. Abraham is with God in heaven along with the Old Testament saints, including all the prophets of God. Flesh, Abraham's flesh is buried in the field that he bought from the Amorite or the Canaanite that was in the land at that time. But Abraham's hope is the same as Paul's. What did Paul say? You know, I may be departing. He says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But Solomon understood that. Ecclesiastes. These men should know Ecclesiastes. What does Solomon say there at the end? You know, at death, the spirit departs and returns to God who gave it. Sin blinds. To you who have saving faith, this promise is sweet and of great encouragement. The promise is not that your body will never die. No, it's that you dwell in a body that will be, you'll be reunited to when Christ comes again. But when you leave this body, your spirit shall be immediate with the Lord. You're partaker in the first resurrection. And therefore, as John records in the book of Revelation, those who are partakers in the first resurrection have no part in the second death. What's the first death? That which Adam got in the garden. The second Adam, Christ, gives us partaking in the first resurrection, which means we'll be part of the second resurrection. When Jesus comes again, our body and soul will be reunited. We'll be with the Father and with Christ in heaven forever and ever. No part in the second death, which is what? Again, the book of Revelation, John, the author, says it's the lake of fire forever and ever. That's our hope. And so the sting of death is removed because at that point we go to be with God. Well, this provokes the Jews again, verse 53. You know, if he's trying to win these guys over, you might say he's going about it all wrong. No, he's giving them the truth. The gospel's running through all this, and they need to know the truth. So they say, are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead, and the prophets who are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? That's, a, that's not a straight-out literal translation of the Greek there, but that's definitely the sense of it. Who do you make yourself out to be? The, the Greek is kind of blunt. Who do you say you are? Who, who do you say? But the sense is, who do you make yourself out to be? Who are you calling yourself? 
Have they not received the answer to that question? I and the Father are one. I've come down from heaven. The Father has sent me. I do the will of the Father. He has said this over and over and over again. That's what's brought them to this point in the debate. Their question, I've told you this before, that in the Greek there's two ways you can begin a question. Uh, they're, they're negative particles. And so when they ask the question in the Greek, well, the way this is written, re, uh, written, the way they say it is the anticipated answer is going to be no. So when they say, are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead? The way they ask that in the Greek is the answer is no. It's, it's all it can be. There's a way you can ask it when you expect the answer to be the opposite of that. Well, that shows their heart. They think no, but the reality is yes, Abraham I mean, Jesus is greater than Abraham. And so he answers them once more, and it brings us to our third point, knowing the Father. Jesus makes it very clear at this point that he's not promoting himself. Verse 54, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. Isn't that true? You know, if we're around packing ourselves on the back, buffing ourselves all up, that's just foolishness. There can be confusion here because Jesus is doing the will of the Father. He's doing what his Father is showing him to do. And so he's, he's bold, he's confident, he's doing things. That, and indeed, we should be drawn to honor him. But Jesus' whole point in doing this is draw us to honor the Father. The Spirit brings us to the Son. The Son brings us to the Father that they would be all in one and we would be with them. And so Jesus says, no, if I'm honoring myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me. And that's going to be proven beyond the shadow of any doubt at the resurrection for the father will raise him from the dead the father honors me of whom you say he is your God you see what he's doing here they claim Abraham they claim God Jesus is honoring God and they're contending with him they're insulting him they're blaspheming his name so if he's your father why are you behaving this way why, do you, why can you not see that? You, we see that, but they can't see that. He goes on in verse 55, Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say, I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. You see how he keeps, I know him, I know him, I know him. I've come from him, he said. I've been sent by the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his Son. And so Jesus is declaring the truth to them. He's full of the Spirit without measure, doing the will of the Father in his humanity. He's the God-man, and in his humanity, he's obeying the Father. He's serving the Father, full of the Spirit. He's doing the will of the Father. And once again, there's an irony here. The Jews claim God as their Father. They claim to know him, but they make it very clear they have no knowledge of God because they can even recognize his Son when he's right there with them, even with all the prophecies. What he's doing is the will of the Father. It's been told, foretold through the prophets Uh, by the Father, through the prophets. These wicked men are about self-praise, self-glory, self-honor. In fact, they are jealous of Jesus, who is humbly obeying God the Father, who they want to claim as their own Father. Jesus' greatest shame will be in his humbling himself to the cross, who for our sakes underwent the death of the cross. He humbled himself, the God-man, Therefore, the Father has highly exalted him. No greater honor has been given to any other than that which the Father gave to his Son, gives to his Son, continues to give to his Son throughout all eternity. God's enemies thought it was a victory for them when they destroyed Christ, but it was a great exaltation 
to God's glory, to bring men to God. That's what Paul celebrates in Philippians 2. So in verse 55, Jesus is very direct. Again, we've read this, but he says, Yet you have not known him. They maintain they do. Here's the truth. You have not known him. I know him. But if I say, I do not know him, which is what they want him to say, he said, then I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. And furthermore, your father rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The commentators come down all over the place on that particular passage. Uh, some want to say, well, he saw it in the fulfillment of the promise with the birth of Isaac. Some want to say he saw it uh, when Jesus came with the two angels and appeared to Abraham. That's not what's in view here. Jesus is saying, Abraham was a prophet, and God revealed things to Abraham that he did not reveal to any other. That he would have a seed so significant that all the nations of the earth would be blessed with him. This is on the heels of the promise made to Abraham that there would be a, I mean to Adam, there would be a seed of the woman. He saw that God was going to provide a sacrifice that exceeded a ram in the thicket. When he had bound his son Isaac, God intervened, pointing to him, there's another substitute, there's another one coming. He understood what sacrifices were about. He saw that the land his foot walked on was only a picture and a type of the promised land that God was going to give him. The writer of the Hebrews makes this clear that Abraham was looking for a city whose builder was God. He wasn't looking for a, a strip of sod on the, the eastern shore of the Mediterranean that people are still fighting over even today. Abraham looked way beyond that. Abraham's seed would have his day. An extraordinary birth, born of a virgin. He would have a life live in obedience, a sacrificial death to save his people from their sin. There would be a resurrection and an ascension and a coming to judge all the earth. I believe that what Jesus is saying about Abraham, that Abraham saw that day. It's very clear to us that these Old Testament saints understood more than is recorded in the Old Testament that we come to the New Testament to find. Abel was a prophet and Abraham had an understanding. But God spoke to Abraham. Abraham was a prophet too. And he looked for the day of Christ this day, the unfolding of this time, and even the coming of Christ at the end of the age. Abraham looked for that. He longed for it. But what did these Jews see that claimed to be the seed and the sons of Abraham? They saw the son of a carpenter from Nazareth. And does any good thing come out of Nazareth? That was their slur. That's all they could see. They hated him. They hated him, and indeed would soon prove that with more than words. They didn't know the Father because they did not know the Son, the Son who brings us to the Father. My friends, if you want to know God as your Father, you come through Jesus' Son and by his blood. We talk about faith often. This morning, I, I, I know we are a ways in, and, but I just think it's appropriate to consider what is faith? We talk about it. The larger catechism is very helpful. What is justifying faith? What is this faith that saves? We've talked about temporary faith. We talk about fickle faith. We talk about faith in the wrong thing or the wrong one. What is saving faith? It's a very helpful answer that's gleaned from the scriptures. Justifying faith is a saving grace, it's a gift. That's what grace means. Wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God. We need both. The working of the Spirit, bringing the Word of God. Whereby he, being convinced, this is the sinner, whereby he, being convinced of his sin and misery, of the disability in himself and all other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition, 
not only assents to the truth of the promise of the gospel, but receives and rests upon Christ in his righteousness. Therein held forth for pardon of sin, the accepting and accounting of the person righteous in the sight of God. It's the work of God's spirit in us, whereby we yield to it as the spirit works, and we look to Christ, because the spirit has given us eyes to see who we are before a holy God, and that there's nothing we can do apart it, about it, The only hope is in Christ alone. That's saving faith. Do you know the Father? Do you know Jesus is your Redeemer? Has the Spirit of the living God worked in you? Is Jesus your Savior? Have you come to Christ by faith? Well, Jesus' prayer in John 17 makes it clear that he brings us to the Father. And he says, this is eternal life, to know the Father. That's what these men don't have. They claim it. They don't have it. There's no evidence that they have it. There's no fruit of it. Jesus says the fruit will be that you'll obey my words. That will be the fruit that you have it in your heart. Well, that brings us then to the great I am. This was the final straw for these guys. Verse 57, the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Now, you may have heard a sermon on this text and say, well, you know, while all the Jesus has been through, he looks so haggard, they're thinking he may be 50 years old. That's not the point. They're not really commenting on his appearance, but there's there's a, there's a genera- generality of sort of like almost a little bit of hyperbole you know, that you're not even 50 years old. Never mind you know, hundreds and hundreds, like 2,000 years ago, when Abraham walked on the earth. And obviously, for Abraham to have seen his day would say that Jesus has seen Abraham, and he did, as the Son of God. And Jesus said to them, "Most assuredly, I say to you." Now, if he wants to get along with these guys, if he wants them to play nice with him, he wants it to turn out well, he shouldn't have said what he said next. But if he wants to honor his father and be obedient to the father and do the will of the father and indeed testify to the sons of men, to sinners, he says, most assuredly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. It's one of Jesus' great I am statements. This is the word that he, in the pre-incarnate state, in the burning bush before Moses, when Moses said, all right, you're going to send me to the children of Israel. Who should I say sent me? He says, I am. The self-existence God. The God who, who exists beyond time, before time, and the, the, the incomprehensible reality of the eternity that God has dwelt in, in children. You don't get it. I can't comprehend it. Before God spoke, there was... God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, dependent on no one, self-existent, I am. No other one can say that. We might begin to sentence and say, I'm a son, I'm a father. That's not what Jesus is saying. He is taking that which is the attribute of God alone. I am self-existent. Is this not what he's been saying all through this discourse in John 8? He's saying, I'm God. I've come from God. God is my Father, therefore I am God. I am one with the Father. I do the will of my Father. And they're getting that, but here it is. He says, I am. And in their mind, there could be no greater blasphemy. But my friends, the truth is, there could be no greater truth. He is God. This is where John began his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made. He's God, the Creator. He's the great I Am. And there he is, arrayed in humility, clothed in obscurity. As Isaiah says, no, nothing about him that would attract us to him. 
forget all the ridiculous breaking of the second commandment you've seen, where they make him all some look buff and attractive. No. It's a servant. And it was going to be even more marred. He is the I am, the eternal God. For him to say otherwise would be a lie. Well, that does it. Rather than bowing in humility and in fear, they seized stones. The temple at the time was under construction. They're, they're in the court of the Gentiles, uh, uh, the court of the women. There's, there's piles of stones that are being used. And so they pick up those stones. You can see them at that point. You know, covering their ears and screaming and running to fire the stones. They come back. They're, they're ready to hurl not words but stones at the great I am. What a stunning picture. They're filled with hate. It was demonstrated what was in their heart. They are determined to murder Christ. But he's not to die by stoning. He's going to die on a cross. He's going to die at the time of the Passover. It was not yet his hour. And so what does John tell us? So they took up stones to throw and have him. But Jesus hid himself. And he went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. There's a couple times we've seen that happen, and we wonder, did he have this cloaking device? No, he's living as a man. There's, there's nothing supernatural that happened at that moment whereby that he just went visible. He's in the crowd, and he just, he just kind of slipped away in the crowd. And he was gone. And they couldn't stone him because he wasn't going to die by stoning. He'd come to be hung upon a cross, cursed, is everyone who hangs upon a tree. And he hung to be cursed for our sake because of our sin. He's the God of glory. Those of you, those, there were those who heard the good news that day. Let us always remember. Here's this, the Jews contending, abrasive, uh, filled with hate, but there's a crowd. And in that crowd, there would have been those that believed. The apostles are there. Judas was there. He's going to throw in his lot with those who picked up stones. But there were those that the Spirit was working in and was drawing to Christ, even as he is working today to draw people to himself. My friend sees the way and the truth and the life. You want to come to the Father? You want eternal life? You want your sins to be forgiven? Come through Jesus. And he says, welcome. Come to me and welcome. Amen. Father God in heaven, we bless you and praise you for your mighty word. Father, we thank you that you sent your son into the world and that by your spirit you upheld him in all his humanity, that he should be faithful in all things, doing your holy will, even contending with evil men who hated him. Father, we know how intimidating it can be when we're just out of sorts with someone we care about. So when we're in relationship with him, and when the words get tense and we just want to go and hide or maybe we want to attack. Lord, we thank you for the, 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 the example of Christ here. Not that that's the main point, but Father, we do thank you for his example. Father, we thank you that we can be encouraged that when we are set upon for being faithful and bearing witness and, and sharing the gospel, that we should expect to suffer, even as our Savior did. And Lord, we pray that you would bless us in such an hour to marvel that we are counted worthy, but also that we would not shrink back that we would continue to press those that we love with the gospel, that you might preventure to bring them to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing number 162, Of the Father's Love Begotten. 162. This is a